TBRI. 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 Trust-based relational intervention. TBRI is an attachment-based trauma-informed intervention that is designed to meet the complex needs of vulnerable children. TBRI uses empowering principles to address physical needs, connecting principles for attachment needs, and correcting principles to disarm fear-based behaviors. While TBRI is based on years of attachment, sensory processing, and neuroscience research, the heartbeat of TBRI is connection. Hello and welcome to the TBRI podcast. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 5. On this show, we talk all about trust-based relational intervention, or TBRI. We talk about different elements of the model itself, but also about how TBRI is applied in various systems of care and practice. Today on the podcast, we're switching things up a little bit. Sarah Mercado, who is usually our host, passed the mic to me, Emily Pickett, and I had the chance to interview her about the TBRI correcting principles. Sarah is a training specialist here at the KPICD, and this episode is packed with so much wisdom and practical tools that you can try today. If you haven't listened to our episodes about the TBRI connecting and empowering principles, be sure to pause this episode and go back and listen to those first if you can. They are going to lay a lot of the groundwork and context for what Sarah is going to share. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Sarah Mercado. Sarah, it's so fun to be here today with you. It is so fun. I feel like we're doing a swap the mic, share the mic episode. I'm a little nervous. It feels like in elementary school when it was a prize to like be principal for a day. That's what yes. I, I get to be podcast host for a day. I'm so excited. Can you believe I was never invited to be principal for a day? <laughs> Neither was I. What's that about? <laughs> oh, maybe nobody connected with us. Maybe not. Well, here we are now. You are in the hot seat, so to speak, today. And we're going to talk all about the TBRI correcting strategies. Are you ready? Fun. I'm ready. I hope. Okay. So before we get into the correcting strategies, can you talk a little bit about um, the mental model of discipline and how that helps us implement TBRI, particularly when it comes to the correcting principles? Yeah, I think that's a really great question because I think for a lot of us, we maybe didn't start out our parenting journeys or our uh, working with kids journeys. Um in, in a way that was about meeting needs. And so for me, I grew up in an environment that was very kind of cause and effect. If I did something wrong, this happened. Um, and so, so I came into my journey of, of working with youth who have experienced trauma and then parenting um, through the lens of, I say it, you do it because I'm the adult. Surely I'm right all the time. You're the kid and whatever I say goes. Even, even when I was wrong, like I was willing to just die on that, that hill to, to make my point and be the adult that was in control and in charge. And when I began to hear TBRI and understand trauma, it became very clear to me that I was, my framework did not fit. And, and, and then I became exposed to this mental model of discipline. And it comes from our friends at CTEC. But what we're trying to do is shift our lens from one where we see behavior is being willful. Do I believe this child is completely in control of what they're doing? Do they 
Do I believe they already know how to do what I'm asking them to do? Do I have respect for their history, right? And if I believe they're completely in charge, if I don't, if I don't buy into the impacts of trauma, then I'm going to approach them as if they are being willfully disobedient. And the way this goes down is that with, with our kids who have experienced trauma, you know, they've already lost everything. We can't take more away from them. I, I really believe now that our opportunity is to give. So when I go after them uh, as if they're being willfully disobedient, then I'm basically saying, get into a power struggle with me. And if, if you've ever been in a power struggle with a youth, you know where that ends, that the youth wins and, and, and the adult loses. And really what we're saying is that everybody loses, right? I, we have an opportunity to pour into our kids. And if we look at them through the lens of willful disobedience, their response is going to be, you know, they're going to increase their resistance to what we're asking them to do. They're going to have more and more oppositional behaviors and social problems. And oftentimes those things come actually with diagnoses that hurt our kids even more. And on the adult side, we have an increased frustration. We begin to enforce more and more rules. And then we end up with burnout because we're just not making the difference we, we really hope to make. So if I reframe my thinking to one where I'm looking at their behavior as if they're surviving, I'm looking at their behavior with respect to um, the trauma that they've experienced. I no longer see the manipulation, the triangulation, the control, aggression, violence. I now see this child is trying to survive. And if this child has to use these tactics to survive, I better take this chance to teach them new tactics that don't fall into maladaptive behaviors, right? But I can't take those things away. I can't take away a child's ability to manipulate to keep themselves safe if I don't give them the right, the right tools to, to get their needs met. So if I look through the lens of survival, all of a sudden the child has more of an awareness. They understand what's going on. They begin to understand what fear looks like within themselves and how their behavior is a fear-based behavior. And, and my ultimate goal is that, that I give them words and I give them tools to use to survive in this world without having to use the former tools. And as, a, as an adult, all of a sudden I feel like I'm kind of getting it. Like I get to be a part of a thing where I am actually teaching kids something. I'm not just keeping them within these stringent rules that we've created because we're so afraid of what will happen if we let go of those rules, right? Now I'm compassionate towards them. I, I'm starting to look at what on earth is going on behind your behavior and what do you need? And I start to give them a voice. So if they start to use their words and they know that their voice works, then that's the money, right? That's the golden ticket. That's what we're going for. And if you remember backing up to um, when Amanda talked about uh, trauma and when Jamie talked about attachment, we're trying to give voice. That's one of the things that, that children get when we are going through that attachment cycle in a healthy way. And then they learn to use their words. Well, most of our kids that we serve haven't ever been given a voice, so they don't know how to use their words. So when I shift my, my focus from looking at this child's behavior from willful to looking at their behavior as survival, I now get to be compassionate towards them and I get to like legitimately teach them something 
about their behavior and about how things have happened and how they've been compromised in such a way without having to be mad or frustrated or angry. I just get to go in with a a different level of compassion. And I think that is so important. And so when, when we look at that mental model, we're trying to get the adult to have a mind shift to a way of seeing survival behavior versus willful behavior. I love that. I think that is so important. And I'm about to throw you a little bit of a uh, curveball here because we didn't talk about this. But could you really briefly tell the people how you got into this work, how you come to this, um, this work and, and what you talked a little bit about your mind shift in the beginning, but I think it would be so great to give a little bit of context for how you got here. If you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So I, um, I graduated from college and I was on a mission to live in different places for about six months at a time. I was going to go have an adventure and um, which was really delightful to my parents. Um, And, and I landed in Austin, Texas first. I had some friends that lived here and they said, basically come live in this shoebox size um, room in our apartment that was supposed to be an office. And I landed working with, um, some kids out at a a camp program and that was my first tiptoe into child welfare work, which was actually not a tiptoe. It was like jumping deep into the ocean and not having a clue as to what I was doing. Um, And I worked out there for about eight years and uh, it was an outdoor camping program that had a whole lot of chaos and Um, I got frustrated finally because I didn't feel like I was really making the difference that I wanted to make. And then, um, we, uh, we started our family shortly thereafter. So I left there. I was extremely frustrated, went to water plants at the Home Depot because that didn't frustrate me. Um, and we started our family and then I came back into child welfare and started working in in foster care, which is where I learned TBRI and had my big um, personal battle with whether I was willing to, to do the work to be able to do TBRI. And uh, through that journey, I um, became a uh, wild card, I like to think of, on the steering committee of the Travis County Collaborative for Children, which was um, run by Dr. Purvis and Dr. Cross. And for some reason, in the middle of all these brilliant minds, they said, we should hire her. And that's how I ended up at the Institute was um, being kind of the wild card on the committee that they just had this wild idea that it would be a good job to bring me on. So that's a little snippet of my journey here. I love it. Thank you for indulging us with that. Yeah. I'm very glad they hired the wild card person. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Okay, so jumping back into our correcting principles, we often say that um, at the end of an interaction, we want the three C's to be achieved. So can you kind of unpack the three C's for us? Yeah, and um, I'll just do this briefly, but the the three C's are basically that when we have an interaction involving the the correcting principles, we want for both parties, the adult and the youth or the child, to be connected we want for both parties to be content and we want for the, the behavior to be changed. So change behavior is the third C. And I think it's really, really important because sometimes people will say that TBRI is maybe too permissive or, or too kind and gentle. 
but I, I want everybody to focus on that third C, which is change behavior. Um, we often, we just want, well, we want to make sure that people understand with TBRI, we're looking for a really great balance of nurture and structure. We have really high expectations of our kids. We want them to meet our expectations, but so, so we do want that behavior to change. We want them to learn the right way of doing things. So that that's the third C. But when we talk about the balance of structure and nurture, we want high structure. If, if we need it, we want high structure. But that means we have to follow with high nurture to meet the needs and, and to build connection. So the other two C's are connected and content. And I know in, in my previous um, way of working with kids, I might think the behavior was changed, even though it was temporarily changed. I hadn't built the neuropathways for the right way. Um, but I guarantee you, the kid was never content. I was probably sometimes content. And I assure you, we were not connected. It was very much a, a go away. You do your thing over there. You don't, you're not worth, worthy of being near me until you get your behavior intact. And so anytime we enter into an interaction with the kids, at the end of it, we want for both parties to be connected, content, and to have changed behavior. And sometimes that behavior might be mine that needs to change as the adult. So moving into kind of the meat of the correcting principles, we've got proactive strategies and responsive strategies that we talk about. Um, but let's start with the proactive strategies. Can you talk a little bit about um, how we proactively teach and how those strategies interact with correction? That's a really great point because for me, when I hear the word correction, I feel like I'm beyond doing something proactively, right? Like I don't incorporate my pro my my previous time into this correction. Um, but if we look at our kids through the lens of some of the things Amanda talked about, she talked about the five B's. So remember, all of the, these five B's are all changed by trauma, right? The body, the brain, the belief system, the biology, the behavior. If we, if I go into an interaction with a kid and I can keep in my head and I'm working hard to have this, the survival mindset, right? This kid is trying to survive and, and he's 15 years old and, you know, refusing to do whatever it is I'm asking to do, even if it's something that I think is fairly simple, like maybe taking out the trash or putting his backpack away. And, and I look at how I'm approaching that child with consideration to the five B's, then I have to approach him or her differently, right? So we always want to keep in the back of our mind the the brain, the biology, the body, the belief system, and the behavior are going to be different and therefore should be dealt with differently. And then we secondly want to want to focus on these three pillars of trauma-wise care, which I think are um, kind of the adult's responsibility, right? So am I creating felt safety? Am I creating connection? And am I keep creating self-regulation or help, helping with self-regulation? So when we think about proactive strategies, we're, we're saying we're going to take the time to, to slow our worlds down enough to proactively teach, teach these youth the right way of doing things before we start correcting them for doing it the wrong way. So we're talking about putting time in before we ever get to an incident. We're talking about taking time when the child is regulated to teach and practice proactively how to do things. And that might look like, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to role play with a, with a young child, how bedtime's going to go, 
right? We're not going to do it at bedtime because the wheels are typically falling off then. So I'm going to say with respect to the, the five Bs, with respect to the trauma this child has had, I know that I need to create an environment of felt safety, an environment of connection, and an, an environment where I am helping with regulation during these hard times. And so I'm going to start to build motor memory around the things that are the right way at a time in the day that's good. So when we think about proactively teaching, we're talking about taking the time to, to make the assumption that this child doesn't know the right way and that they cer- certainly aren't going to go to our right way when stress hits, right? These kids already have neuropathways for, for maladaptive behavior. And the only way to create neuropathways for the good behavior is by practicing. And so we want to practice those things. A couple of other uh, things within our proactive teaching that we give are our life value terms and our scripts. We have a list of life value terms. I think you can even find um, some printables of them on our, our website. Um, and so that might be like using respect or use your good words or um, with permission and supervision. We have a nice list of them. And so I encourage you to, to go to the website and the, the thing to think about life value terms is that we are trying to create a common language, right? So we want, if I say, use your good words, every child that I'm talking to in this environment knows what good words are, and they know what I mean when I say good, use good words. So life value terms, while they can fall into this subset of, of terms that we've created and we, we have available to you, they might also be unique to your family. So for example, I was working with a family years ago and they had four little kids. And when they got out of the car, they said duck. And I'm like, what do you mean duck? And it meant that that mama was in the front and daddy was in the back and they were all in a little line in between them. And like, it was like, they were like a, a little family of ducks. And that all they had to say when those kids got out of the car was duck. They didn't have to say, everybody line up, quit going over there, quit doing that, don't touch that, don't do that. They knew when we get into a parking lot, this is what we do. And the the trigger for them was the word duck, right? And so when we think about life value terms within your environment, um, like, for example, we might say, ask that again with respect, or are you asking or telling, right? Well, you know, our friends at TJJD are like, we're not going to go up to a 17-year-old and say, are you asking or telling? But so Troy McPeak came back and he said, I just asked him, you want to put a question mark on the end of that, right? He's telling them, don't be demanding, but he's not having to say, don't be demanding. He's saying, use your good words. He's saying, use respect when you, when you talk with me and ask me things, you know? And so life value terms are a way to get us um, into a common language. And again, you can find those on our website in a, a printable form. So the, the second part of our, uh, re- our proactive strategies would be our scripts. And our scripts are really simple. It's choices, compromises, and behavioral redos. So I like to think of the life value terms as kind of what we say, and our behavioral scripts is what we do. And so when we enter into um, correcting our kids, we need to have some things in our pocket to ask them to do. You will see the choices and compromises will come into um, the, the levels of response under our structured level and the behavioral reduce are throughout. And so we'll, t- we'll talk more about those um, as we get into our responsive strategies. 
Cool. Thanks, Sarah. And I just want to uh, reiterate that we will, um, anything that you're, you're hurrying to write down, we put links to all of this stuff in our show notes. And so uh, Sarah mentioned that printable of the life values. Those are a great starting point, but definitely adapt those for your culture, your family. Okay. So you've given us a nice little segue into the responsive strategies. Let's talk about those. Could you walk us through the ideal response, Sarah? Yes. So when things go wrong, as they will, we would like to think they wouldn't. And I think, you know, maybe I should have said in the proactive strategies that some of our best proactive strategies are connection and uh, empowering. So oftentimes we say if we'll spend the time on, on connecting and empowering, then we don't have to get into the meat and potatoes of the correcting strategies. But sometimes we do. Right. And so when we think about something's going wrong, we want to go into our ideal response, which means we're going to respond immediately. I like to say you can't TBRI from the couch. You can old school parent from the couch, but you, you TBRI up close and personal. So when something begins to go wrong, we want to respond as immediately as we possibly can. Um, Dr. Purvis used to tell us within three seconds, and that was her awareness of the five B's. She's bringing it back in. I know that this kid is not going to remember this in, you know, 20 hours from now. Like I need to be right here as close as I can while, the, while they're still plugged into what we're doing. So we want to be immediate. Now, listen, if you're in a group setting, do your best, right? I hope that you won't look at any of these strategies in a way that say like, that's not possible where I am. Do your best. Get there as quickly as you can. Okay. So immediate and then direct. Okay. Direct is where we're going to use those engagement strategies that Amanda talked about and the connecting principles where we're going to use our eye contact. We're going to, you know, be right there with the kid. We're on their level. We're behavior matching, right? We're using all those engagement strategies to communicate very clearly with the kid. Okay. Our efficient level or our efficient part of the ideal response is where we bring in our levels of response. And we'll talk about those um, after this. Action-based is the A, which means this is where we want to see the redo. We want the kid to have a chance to do it the right way. When you think about the neuropathways being created for a child that has been harmed, then they have neuropathways for survival. And we want them to do things on repeat the right way. I always think about how young my girls were when I taught them how to say please and thank you. And it was before they were verbal. Like I'd put some food on their high chair and say, you know, thank you. Or do you want this? Say, please. Right. I started that so young because I wanted it to be just part of what they do. And now it is. But we have to have action based learning if we want our kids to to do things the right way. Okay, and then leveled at the behavior, not the child. Now, this can be hard because if you come from any kind of old school type parenting that oftentimes it's really easy to say like, you're 15 years old. Why are you behaving that way? Um, which is shame inducing, right? Or, or, or to do anything that that's not just about the behavior. You know, you're 15 years old. You should be able to take out the trash right when I ask you to without us looking all around uh, the behavior. So the L of the ideal response is leveled at the behavior not the child. So when the behavior comes up, we deal with the behavior, but the child is still a child. They are still in our care. They are still precious and we need to treat them as such. 
I love that. It just reminds me, Dr. Purvis used to say that their preciousness is never up for grabs. And so I'm, I'm glad you said that. Oh my um, goodness. I know. It'll get you that one. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you were wanting to go back to the E in ideal, that efficient piece. Could you walk us through those levels of response that are part of the efficient part of the ideal response? Absolutely. Yes. And maybe through a scenario, that might be a good way to. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's stick with, since I seem to be stuck on taking out the trash, um, (laughs) (laughs) we'll, we'll stick with that. And, and really this can be for, it doesn't matter what environment you work in, right? Because we all have to take out the trash at some point. And oftentimes that's a, a, a chore within households and facilities and, um, you name it. Um, so let's say we have a 15 year old who is, uh, it's their turn to take out the trash. And, and I ask them, you know, to take out the trash and they're like, no, I don't want to. Well, we're going to start off with level one, which is playful. Now I'm going to tell you very clearly that it is really important that we not only look at the why behind the child's behavior, but also the why behind our behavior. So if when, I, when that child says no, and, and I feel myself like bubbling to the top of like, I'm going to go straight to the ends of the earth because this, it's not okay to tell me no, right? Like that's my history, right? That's, that's not about what this child is doing or saying or refusing to do or refusing to say or whatever, right? So I need to not only look at the why behind their behavior, but also the why behind my response. So he says, you know, no, I'm not taking out the trash. Now, I want to keep in mind, we're still at a really low level thing. Whereas my history might tell me that this is like a really big deal. This is really not a big deal. He's just said, no, I'm not taking out the trash. Right. And so I want to keep in mind, we're in playful engagement. This is level one. Executive functioning is still online. We're still operating really well in our executive functioning for for the youth. Um, maybe, you know, he, he's really just been sassy, like, I'm not taking out the trash. My goal is playfulness. Now, I don't go to playfulness really well without sarcasm. Sarcasm is a great thing for me. I really like it. It doesn't count, though. So no sarcasm. Okay, I'm, you should go ahead and grieve if you're listening to this. If you have to let go of sarcasm, go ahead and grieve that. I've done my grieving. So our goal is playfulness. Um, or my focus as the adult is playfulness. And my overall goal is a redo and to get the trash taken out, right? This child already knows telling me no is not acceptable. I don't need to spend an hour telling them that it's not acceptable. They already know that. Like they know something's coming, right? So when he says, no, I don't think I'm gonna take out the trash right now. I'm gonna say, oh, really? You wanna try that again with some respect, right? I'm gonna be really simple. I'm not gonna go into a huge, you know, big, long um, ordeal about why it's important to listen to me the first time I tell you to do something and all of that kind of stuff, right? My goal is only for him to ask the right or to respond the right way and to take out the trash. Don't lose sight of the thing that's here. It's easy as adults to get into a place of like, oh my gosh, he's refusing to do this. Now he's going to refuse that. He's going to end up in jail and blah, 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 right? Like, This is the thing. Trash is our thing. The child's attitude is our thing. Keep the thing the thing. Okay. So I'm just going to be playful. 
I might say, oh, yeah, you are, or whatever. We have a relationship. I know how to be playful with him. So I want to respond and play. And then if he says, okay, I'll go take out the trash. Awesome. Mission accomplished. He did the thing the right way and it's over. That means that later on, if I say time to go brush your teeth and he says, I don't want to brush my teeth. I don't get to say, Hey, you remember earlier with the trash? We're not, we're not going to do that little again. Like I'm not going to keep giving you second chances every time you choose to not do the right thing. Right. Remember when it's over, it's over. We're dealing with this one moment with this child and what's going on here. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, why wouldn't he just take out the trash when I asked him to, right? A million reasons. Sometimes it just is stupid to take out the trash. I don't want to go do that. It's smelly, right? It could be all kinds of things. But right now, I'm just trying to get keep the train on the tracks, right? I'm trying not to send this into a big explosion. So level one is playful. Let's say I say, let's go take out the trash. And I try my playful response. And he says, I already told you I'm not taking out the trash. And I'm like, oh, okay. And inside, this is where I have to be mindful. Amanda talked about mindfulness because I want to come out screaming, right? Like I want to meet this with a lot of heavy, heavy pressure. Again, this is not, we're not there yet, right? We're going to come in at level two with structured engagement. We want to keep in mind that our, the, the, the use executive functioning is beginning to be altered right? So we're starting to head towards that downstairs brain. We're starting to go in the direction of, I can't do relationship. I can't make good choices. I can't um, stay online is what I like to think of. The youth is mildly agitated. We are not at, at war yet, right? Like we are, at, this is structured engagement. So my only goal as the adult is to help this youth structure their thought process. Okay. I'm going to do that through the use of choices and the use of compromises. Now, here's the thing. As soon as you refuse to share power, you've already lost power. So if you're thinking, I told them to do it, they should do it. I'm not going to give them a choice outside of what I've asked them to do. And you get into that mindset, you are, you immediately have gone into the willfulness mindset that this child is being willful and not survival, and you will lose this power struggle. Okay. The moment, the moment that we refuse to share power, right, is the moment that we lose all of our power, okay? So choices and compromises, and this can be hard for us because one of the rules of choices is that they both have to be good choices, okay? So I can't say, you know what, you can take out the trash or you can just hand over your phone, right? Our, a, a choice for us can't be what we would uh, call a child ma- manipulative for saying, right? That's a manipulation. You can do what I want you to do, or you can lose that thing you like. That's basically what we've just said. Okay. That is not okay. I like to think because choices are hard for me to come up with on the spot. I feel a lot of pressure to make them right. So I always like to make one of the choices about connection. And so I would say, okay, do you want to take out the trash by yourself? Or do you want to take out the trash together? What do you choose? Or I might say, do you want to take out the trash now? Or do you want to take out the trash when I'm done cooking and we can do it together? Right. And give a little bit of wiggle room. Here's the thing. As soon as we start pushing these kids into a corner, we're going to lose. And guess what doesn't happen? The trash doesn't get taken out. Right. So I would rather take that time because in that moment where we're distracted by taking out the trash, I might hear what's going on behind the behavior. Right. I don't know what trash time was like for these kids. 
I don't know before they landed here with me what this chore looked like in their house, right? I don't know if they were taking out beer bottles that their mom had been hit in the head with, right? I have no idea what this chore connects to for them. All I know is that my goal is to get the trash taken out with the least amount of resistance as possible and the most amount of connection, okay? So choices and compromises. And it might say that he says, you know what? I want to wait all the way until after dinner, or I want to wait until right before bedtime. And I might say, well, we can't do right before bedtime because you will have already had your shower, but how about we do um, right before your shower, right? Because here's the thing. I don't need to care about the trash going out right now. I need to care about being connected to this kid and the trash going out before the trash people get here tomorrow, right? So remember, keep the thing the thing, okay? Let's say I say, you know what, bud, you have, you have two choices now. You can take the, 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 the trash now or we can take it out together after dinner because trash is gross and I don't want to touch it while I'm cooking, right? I might even try to add in some play, okay? And he's like hits my cup across the room and water goes flying. And he says, I told you I'm not taking out that dang bleepity bleep trash. Okay. He is, we have lost executive functioning. We are at emotional dysregulation. Um, and, and our executive functioning has really decreased. This is not the time to start preaching at the child. I always like to think you have about five words, make them count really well. And they should include, how can I help you? Okay, so I just used almost all of your words. Um, we are at risk of a major behavioral meltdown, a big episode. We're experiencing mild aggression, but we're not experiencing you know, danger to self or others. If, if water splashes on me, I w- it will dry. I will be okay. Okay, in this moment, my only goal is emotional regulation and physical regulation. Okay, we want to prevent the full-blown crisis And I encourage everybody to have a calming engagement plan. And we should do those with the youth when they're calm, right? What are three things that you need when you're dysregulated? A way to blanket, to take a walk, your headphones, a quiet space, a beanbag chair, you know, and and I like to ask people to just think about what are three things that you need as adults when you're dysregulated. For me, if you ask me, to go sit under a weighted blanket, I'm going to come out fighting. I do not like that. I feel very claustrophobic. But if you say, would you like to take a walk? Absolutely. That always helps me calm down, right? So thinking, we don't all have the same menu. And we might have the same menu, but we aren't going to all choose the same thing to help us regulate. Here's the other thing. You'll remember from Dr. Cross's presentation or his podcast interview on um, empowering, we are the regulators. We have to stay close by. We do not send kids away from us when they're in distress. And and let me just say, and this is maybe a soapbox thing for me. If you send a child away from you when they are in distress and they are in your care, they will go away from you when they are in distress and outside of your care. And for me, I want the kids to come to me. I want my kids when they are in distress to come to their mom. I want kids that I worked with in the past when they were outside of my care to come back to me when they are in distress, which means they are likely in an unsafe situation. So when our kids are are dysregulated and behaviorally challenged, we cannot send them away from us unless that is what they pick for calming. So if they choose, I need a quiet space all by myself, 
I am right here. Whenever you are ready, you come straight to me and I'll be right here. Okay. So our goal of calming engagement is just calming. We'll go back and fix the problem later. We should always come back to that, right? It might not mean that this youth takes the trash out tonight, right? It might mean that we talk about it tomorrow and how we're going to, and we're going to talk about what happened, right? If they are not in a stable place to talk about it tomorrow, they have to be in their upstairs brain to talk about it. So that's a little bit about calming, okay? Our last level is the protective engagement. And this is when um, we're, executive functions are completely compromised and, you know, emotional and behavioral, behavioral dysregulation are, are dominating what's happening in the brain. There is a threat of harm. There is a threat of immediate danger or out of control behavior. And our only focus is behavioral regulation. And our goal is to provide safety for all that are involved. Safety is paramount at this point. This means maybe the kid grabbed the knife, right? He said, I'm not taking out the trash and he has a knife or whatever. And at that point, all of those things that I just said are, are paramount to remember. And then you would default to whatever protective measures your organization um, allows to keep kids safe when they're a danger to self or others. And I, I just want to say one last thing about this, and then I'll wrap it up. This, if we have to get into any situation where we have to place a child in a hold, I want you to hear, we have to place the child in the hold. We have to keep them safe. Safety is paramount. But you also need to, to know this will fracture attachment. It will fracture attachment. It's okay. We have to keep them safe. That has to be our first priority, but we do have to go back and repair that attachment. So make sure if you get into protective engagement with a youth that you find some way to connect back with them, that they understand at the end of it all, that all you were doing was keeping them safe. And that that's the, the only time we'll get into this type of situation is for safety. And then you make sure you come back and do some type of connecting activity something the kid likes to do playing, you know, a game or shooting some hoops or whatever you, you can do to help them feel connected. And so, Emily, that wraps up our correcting strategies. That was so neat and tidy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think we should have said probably at the beginning that this is just designed to be an overview of the correcting strategies. Absolutely. We do long presentations about this. We do day-long trainings about this. And so this is just to sort of whet your appetite for knowing more about um, TBRI correcting principles. And, and hopefully we can get into more specifics in later episodes of the podcast. But I think that this gave us a really good framework, a really good starting point, and um, really just appreciate your expertise, Sarah, and for the way you break it down for us. So oh, thanks fun. for letting me, thanks for letting me steal your job. And thanks for <laughs> telling Anytime. us all about <laughs> correcting. <laughs> Thank you, Emily. It was fun. The TBRI podcast is produced by the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at TCU. To learn more about TBRI and the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit child.tcu.edu slash podcast.